Future by Stefan Molyneux, Chapter 31. Roman's sons were named Ain and Cable. Ain was in his mid-teens, Cable a year or two younger. Everyone thinks that the most important relationships in childhood are with the parents, which is only true if there are no siblings. Like most primitive older brothers, Ain was consumed by the unearned privilege of an early birth. He was taller, of course, stronger, faster at everything except sprinting, a naturally gifted athlete and hunter. Cable was more sensitive, more drawn to their mother, more dreamy and abstract, and thus more subject to scorn and humiliation at the hands of his older brother. Vanity is rage spread thin. Ain could be bitterly funny, but was also perpetually angry. Some people have the disorienting habit of switching emotions without transition, from laughter to rage in a moment. Ain was one of those, and Cable learned quite early to not bother trying to figure out his brother's moods, or trying to appease or placate them. They were both raised in the harsh straitjacket of grim necessity. Babies died. Women expired in childbirth. Infected fingers had to be hacked off. The hunting herds had to be followed. The conveyor belt of food had to run constantly. You had to hunt when you were starving and give food to those who had stayed home. Elders were respected, venerated even, until they consumed more than they could possibly produce, at which point they were expected to take a noble stroll to nowhere. Over many years, a strange bifurcation had occurred in the culture of the tribe. They had a few solar-powered book libraries. They taught their children to read, debated philosophy and morality, and whether there were any limits to the duties owed to the tribe. They had fallen from a high place, which was very different from rising from a low place. Their natural intelligence prevented them from falling too far. They had actually become the mythical creatures talked about so often throughout the ages, the noble savages. They spun complicated stories, invented endless songs, learned and taught complex dances, and justified their Spartan lives with appeals to abstract principles of self-reliance, unadorned natural living, and the usual environmentalist fantasies that technology was a wall between mortals and their true humanity. They did not revere nature, but viewed her as a blind, tough adversary. Almost unknown to themselves, they were part of the sentimental nostalgia common to all human history where people living complicated lives cast their minds back to an imaginary, simplistic vision of hunting, eating, and sleeping. The stress of civilization has always turned to imaginary dust in the face of spear-throwing, face-painting, and crapping in a hole. Their lives were occasionally stressful, but the stress never lasted for long. 
unlike the old world, which seemed designed to slowly murder people by incrementally drowning them in endless cortisol. It is hard to enjoy your life if you are trapped on a ship that takes 50 years to sink. In the old world, the unsustainability of the system was deeply felt by the ice people, those who had evolved with the instinctive stress measurements of the longevity of proposed resources. Can we make it through the winter? Those carefree souls who failed to answer this basic question accurately froze in their huts come March. The old world had no chance of lasting. Mathematically, demographically, morally, in any and every way. And those trapped in its cripplingly slow decay, choked, suffocated and drowned in their own rising stress. The human system of survival, the adrenaline dumps of sprinting from predators, was stretched to unbearable lengths. Hormonal responses designed to last minutes were stretched out to decades. And people turned into fitful ghosts, dragging the chains of their own mismatched biology. Neither the parents nor the children slept the first night that the angels hovered overhead, outlined against the ghost clouds and stars. Sudden shifts in elemental power can scarcely be navigated by the trauma-frozen mental maps we use to navigate brutal authority. The parents were beyond uneasy. They no longer felt like parents, in fact. At some point, about halfway through that dismal night, Roman threw aside his covers and stepped out of his tent. It was a starry night, and a slow breeze brought chill hints of the coming winter. The constellations blazed and shivered, supremely indifferent to the mad changes in the world they barely lit. Roman coughed, hoping to summon other parents. Almost immediately, tent flaps opened and parents came filing out from their sleepless teepees. Gratifyingly, no children emerged. Roman gestured for the parents to follow him towards a low tangle of cherry trees. Immediately, an angel flashed before him, saying, Please do not leave the children unsupervised. Roman grunted and nodded, feeling a choking stab of rage. He turned around and gestured for the fire to be relit in the center of the encampment. The parents all sat, cross-legged, in a circle. The angels ringed them, like the outer rim of an arrow target. One man with thick black hair said, I could skin your goddamn kids, Roman. An angel appeared on his left shoulder and said, Please note that some children are awake. This statement is unacceptable. Roman said, Let's talk about raising goats. A shiver of nervous laughter ran around the dark circle. He turned to the closest hovering angel. Okay with you, you fat floating freak. Roman could see the firelight reflected in the twin floating doll's eyes of the baby. Silence. Roman turned and said, I don't know. How the hell you are supposed to raise goats without discipline? 
Her father grunted. Those damn things will eat you out of the house at home, unless you put fences up. Her mother said, And what on earth do we do with the goats if all the fences come down and they're used to fences and they just wander around getting in the way and not being productive and not listening, being, being disobedient? Another father whispered, They're just going to turn on us. They're going to bat us in our sleep. It's going to be a, a war. A woman said, How the hell? Am I supposed to raise goats totally different from how I, all of us, were parented? We might as well just try and invent some new clicking language. The circle of blue eyes hovered impassively. Another man growled, Look at us here, sitting in the night, whispering like thieves, hoping we don't get our asses stung by electricity. What kind of authority figures are we supposed to be for our goats? A wide-eyed woman said, Make no mistake, this is the end of us. Roman says we came from the Sith. All right, we live hard out here, that's our way. It had honour because we kept to the path and we could teach our kids. Goat, kids, you floating freaks. But if it all ends here, if we can't be ourselves with our goats, then what the hell was the point of freezing our asses off out here all these years? We might as well just plugged into the Sith with with honey and, and eat and robot butlers and whatnot. It doesn't just... Make a lie of us here and now, but but of everything in in, in the past that, that that we that her eloquence failed her and she sunk into a gloomy silence. I won't have it! Cried another man suddenly, turning defiantly to the floating angels. There has to be some way. Silence and smiles from the floating blue eyes. Roman grunted and said, eh, "I went over all this with David." They have us beat. Even if we could disable them, they'll just send more. They can hear everything, see everything, cut through everything, report home. An older woman burst into tears. God, can't be, can't be so hopeless. I don't even know how to wake up tomorrow. How are we going to get them to do what we want? What we need said the dark-haired man evenly. We sacrificed so much, said another man softly, gesturing into the night. There's a line of ancestors going out to the horizon, all shaking their heads and wishing they could come back to life to knock some sense back into us. A woman said tearfully, Who are we if we are not in charge? Everyone suddenly looked at Roman. They could see, almost scrolling across his face, the words, I don't know. One of the angels turned to him. Scans show no goats in the vicinity. Please do not use analogies when discussing your children. The dark-haired man jumped up, shouting with rage, and leapt at the angel, which darted nimbly up, escaping his outstretched fingers. The floating baby smiled. Please do not attack the angels. Everyone gets one warning. One woman said, Would it be, be helpful if, 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 if we got some, some, some actual goats? Then we could... Roman sighed. Oh, it won't do much good to try and outsmart them. They've been battle-tested, so to speak, in just about every environment. They beat the whole world. He stood up. Now... 
We will have to find another way. Everyone's eyes stared at him expectantly, hopefully. He shook his head again. I'm not saying what you're thinking. The eyelids fluttered. The eyes lowered. The mouths pouted. Roman awoke, feeling tendrils of uneasiness in his belly, an instability, a hanging-by-a-thread-being-hunted sensation. It was late, mid-morning, far beyond his usual rising time, but he didn't feel rested. It was like when hunting was going badly, and he rehearsed endless successful kills in his dreams, but awoke feeling hungry and exhausted. He leaned up on his elbows, turning his face to the left and rubbing his eyes. The teepee was stained, silent. Above him, a little to the right, blocking the small hole designed to let the smoke out, hung a silent, floating angel. The pupils of the blue eyes were trained on him, and he had a sudden shudder, as if he were being watched by a pink devil or or a malevolent ancestor or his own conscience. A sudden thought came to him, and he smiled grimly with the pretense of courage, because he was now being watched for how long? Until I change, the thought came to him. (sighs) He did not want to get up. He wanted to lie in a fetal position, hugging his own tension, circling it, like a useless, toothless shark. But he willed himself to rise, in part because, being over fifty, he had to pee. He stumbled stiffly out of his teepee and looked over the encampment. Very few parents were up. Children milled about playing various games, watched over by the attentive angels. Ain and Cable were playing rock-paper-scissors in front of his teepee over the fading smoke of the night fire. They looked up at him with a curious and complicated mixture of emotions. Fear, defiance, resentment, anger, uncertainty. Morning, Dad, said Ayn warily. Cable nodded in agreement, and Roman returned the greeting. Roman felt sudden anger. The children were just milling about, playing listless games, rather than doing the work necessary for survival. It's not abuse, if it keeps us alive, he thought with sudden savagery. He was developing a kind of sixth sense about the location of the angels. He knew, without turning around, that the angel inside his teepee was now floating behind him, staring at the hairs on the back of his neck. It wasn't that they made any sound or had any electrical presence. It was more like... Mm. He suddenly remembered that as a a child, he had fingered threads while going to sleep and always had a great instinct as to when a thread was just about to end. All predators understand predators. The thought struck him with such sudden severity that he truly imagined that the angel behind him had said something. I don't control in my brain. Given that he did not understand the technology at all, he doubted many people did, even in the sieve, he would have no way of knowing 
but he did begrudgingly accept that the Civ robot pimps believed in free will and wouldn't program him that way. It's your inner angel answering the outer. Roman grimaced and put his hands to his ears uselessly. He turned to his kids. What the hell are you doing? He was about to demand, but checked himself. What are you up to? He asked. Ain ducked his head, glancing just above and behind his father. Just waiting for you to, to get up, I suppose. Kane, his youngest, said, Are you hungry? Roman waved him off. He caught the eye of another father across from the central fire pit who cocked his head and shrugged slightly. Roman's eyes narrowed. Do I need to talk? About what? asked Ayn with pretend innocence. There was an awkward pause. Roman could clearly see that his boys wanted to get back to their game and suddenly felt further anger. Unwanted. He looked at his boys closely. Cable could not yet grow a beard, but Ayn possessed some fairly robust stubble. Unnecessary. Roman wondered where his wife was. He saw a line of people walking in the heat-hazed distance. Probably the women going to get water. (sighs) Roman had no idea what to say to his sons. He opened his mouth and closed it like a slow-motion fish out of water. What? What are you boys up to today? Ain looked at him with a flash of defiance. We have no idea. What is that supposed to mean? Roman was about to ask, but realized he could not neutralize his tone to the satisfaction of the floating angel. Roman took a deep breath. All right. Things have changed. Let's not pretend. Cable swallowed, his cheeks reddening, and wiped his eyes with self-conscious anger. Ain said, It's hard to know who's in charge now. Roman said evenly, You brought us down this path on a mountain that night with those girls. You always told me to defend what's ours, cried Ain. Roman felt hot rage. His fists clenched and he felt a tickle on the back of his neck with the approach of the angel. A floating baby in the back of his brain froze his tongue. I didn't tell you to bully girls, he said with effort. Oh, yeah, Dad, because bullying whoever is smaller is totally bad, right? Roman's mouth fell open. The scorn. He took a deep breath. Oh, you are very brave now with your little allies. Cable said, I don't like this any more than you do, Dad. Oh, shut up, said Ain carelessly. The baby angel was silent. Roman leaned in, towering over his eldest son. So, you want to be in charge now, right? He murmured. You got your little sky buddies. You've got half a mustache. You've got your skinny little muscles and your little bit of armpit arrogance. I understand. Happens to all. So, be in charge. I promote you. Go on, get all the food and keep everyone in line and <laughs> watered. These angels don't want me to treat you like a child, so don't be a child. Be a man. 
It's what you want, isn't it? Dad, murmured Cable, obviously frightened. Oh, God, don't be such a baby, cried Ayn in frustration. The angel darted forward from behind Roman and said, Please do not insult your brother. Roman's eyes widened slightly. How the hell does it know they are related? He felt an elemental invasion of his privacy. He glared at the floating blue eyes. How the hell do you know that? Silence. I want to talk to David. Put put him on, the angel said. I am not a communications device. Ain looked up, squinting against the white glare of the clouds surrounding the angel. How long are you here for? Silence. Roman's hands itched for a giant stick that he could use to smash and smash the angel into easily buried history. He then felt a sudden rush of sadness, of loss, and remembered his own father towering over him, exacting vengeance for some slight he could not remember. Don't do it! Who am I without power? The most fundamental question of humanity shot through his mind, chased by crackles of trauma. Roman squatted down in front of his children. If you want to learn how to live, you will do what I say. Although I am now prevented from punishing you or raising my voice. Sitting here, playing your finger games, will not put any food on your lap or water in your belly. You don't want to be irresponsible. You need to hunt. You need to set traps. You need to make sure that the women are getting what they need. Life is a circle that goes around day after day. Your bodies are always eating themselves, whether you feed them or not. Do you understand? Roman's voice rose slightly at the end of his speech. He flinched involuntarily, but apparently he was still within bounds because nothing happened. Ayn's eyes also narrowed, almost in imitation of his father, it seemed. I'm tired of hunting. Cable inhaled sharply, sitting back. Roman said, I'm not going to talk about this again. We are hunters, not farmers. Ayn jutted out his lower lip and said, We didn't get in trouble because I pushed a few girls around. We got in trouble because you beat the hell out of anyone who wants to plant crops. We got in trouble because we are always moving around, so we don't have any property, we don't have any rights. And you said yourself that the sieve is all about property. You blame me for your own dumb decisions, Dad. He imitated Roman. We are hunters, we throw spear, we eat meat, we are brave warriors who shoot deer and beat children. Cable was too frightened to laugh. Ayn continued. And you never have to take any responsibility... We could have half the land growing food for us, but no, we have to be hunters. We have to cover our cheeks in blood. That is, what do you say, our way. Well, it's not our way, Dad. It's just your way. Hey, you yell at me for not taking responsibility, but you raised me, Dad. Who am I but the shadow of you, of what you want, what you have done? I'm not some carved-off thing that has nothing to do with you. 
That's right, said Roman grimly. Blame me for everything. The angel moved forward slightly and said, Irrational absolutes tend to escalate conflict. Oh, shut up! screamed Roman, raising his arms thick with fight-or-flight blood. Roman woke up in the late afternoon. His wife, Sarah, was leaning over him, pressing a cold cloth to his forehead. Oh, you're back, she said simply. Turn yet. Look around. Roman grimaced and obeyed her. Lying on hides were a dozen women and half a dozen men. All were in various states of dazed disrepair. The dark-haired man from the previous night was next to him. He smiled wryly at Roman. Well, we can't confirm that the angels work at least. Roman said, oh, I don't remember getting the warning. The dark-haired man leaned over with glowing eyes and whispered, You were magnificent. i never seen more electricity, except from the sky. The tribe fell apart. There was no other way to put it. The women stopped having sex with the men. The men wandered around, depressed, anxious, almost formless, it seemed. Some were seen shaking under the scant starlight, as if withdrawing from a powerful addiction, as in fact they were. The older children, having been ground down by brutal authority their entire lives, attempted to enter the power vacuum caused by the angels, but the floating eyes were having none of it. Elder siblings were commanded to refrain from verbal or physical abuse against the younger siblings, against other children. If they were young, the commandments were very gentle, and if ignored, the angels simply interposed themselves between the children. If verbal abuse continued, the angels played classical music at very high volume, driving the attacker away. Children wept in the dirt and dust, bereft of form, shape, and personality. Mothers wept with them, side by side, without touching, as if in strange solidarity. Men hunted with increased ferocity. They shot animals only to wound them, then stood with their feet on the necks of their prey, firing arrows into their fading eyes. The angels were silent, with one exception. Apparently the non-aggression principle applied only to humans. The dark-haired man was electrified because he was clearly torturing a rabbit. He was not given a warning. Roman felt himself strangely emotional. He had previously controlled his emotions by controlling his children. These eruptions of random feelings were extremely disorienting to him, and he went on long, solitary hunting trips, once even forgetting his arrows, so that his status would not be destroyed by the rebellion of his heart. He dreamed of his father and his mother almost every night. They raged at him as they had in life, demanding that he honor their memory by maintaining their rules. In a strange reversal of what had actually happened to him as a child, his mother 
raged at him, while his father sat in silent and claustrophobic disappointment. Don't do it! He awoke from one of these nightmares with a distinct and metallic thought dancing on his tongue. I was not beating my children by my parents. He could not follow that thought. He lacked the language. Self-knowledge is the most foreign tongue to primitive personalities. They may as well be dropped into ancient Greece to debate Socrates. Every true thought about themselves feels like gibberish to those who have externalized and punished their irrationalities. The work ethic of the tribe largely collapsed. The raging men killed so many animals that the careful weighing of consumption so essential to their survival vanished, and they ran out of meat within a fortnight. In many ways, it was even worse for the women. Female aggression is often second-hand. They cannot beat up other men, but they can spread rumors, attack children, and provoke their mates into fighting other males. The women of the tribe also used sex as a reward mechanism. But since the men were depressed and absent, and the all-seeing angels were everywhere, they lost this power too. With the loss of sexual power came a collapse in grooming standards. Everything the adults did in the tribe was to dominate. In the absence of domination, they were utterly disoriented, like gymnasts in zero gravity. Their muscles meant nothing. There was no resistance, and therefore no strength, no purpose. All their prior ferocious skills sagged into twitchy and flaccid emptiness. Their rage blocked them from learning any new skills, since the new rules were enforced, not accepted. The scorn and rebellion of the children grew in leaps and bounds, because they saw the soft victim underbelly of their prior tormentors. When violence in parenting is removed, parents are revealed as helpless and empty, at least for a time. You could have stopped any time if you wanted to. And you stopped beating us because the angels are beating you. As the collapse of parental work fueled the growing hunger and the survival of the tribe became a very real question, some of the older children began to step into leadership roles, but a very different form of leadership than had been inflicted before. Ain, in particular, felt a growing and grudging sympathy for his parents. Aging patriarchy has long swung from violent abuse to rank self-pity. As strength fades from striking muscles, soul-sucking emotional manipulation takes its place. Fear of violence gets replaced by fear of guilt. Ain could see that his father was shrinking physically. His pride in his lean legs and broad chest had collapsed in on itself. 
Ayn was reminded of the first teepee he had tried to build, which had similarly fallen inward. Violent people are helpless without violence. That is mostly what the violence is designed to cover up. Ayn could see the near-instant erasure of his father's dominance, and Roman's imposing physical and mental figure fell away in his mind, showing a squalling and helpless infant working the levers of a giant warrior's arms. Ayn remembered as a child, curiously hacking back the shell of a dead tortoise and being surprised at the soft and helpless thing inside. The helplessness and the armor are the same thing. He felt sympathy for his father's exposure, but he also felt a cold anger. Sympathy for brutalizers can be warranted, but it is usually a step too far to demand it from their victims. Finally, Aang grew tired of half-measures and demanded that the tribe assemble. The adults were so inert that they simply allowed themselves to be led and sat in a circle around the main fire pit like so many legless sacks. Below were the men, women, and children, floating above them like pink proximate constellations were the tousled blonde angels, silent, smiling, implacable, absolute. Their bows were out. So, we are not doing so well, said Ayn. The eldest, you've all gone walkabout. You're just hunting and eating at a distance, staying out for days, not bringing much of anything back. And the kids, well, they're not doing so well either. His voice cracked, but he struggled on, not even sure what he was going to say next. And it's a shock. I get it. These angels have have changed a lot. Everything, really. But it's not like they've turned us into another kind of animal. We can still hunt. They're not interfering in survival because that would violate their rules or something. It's a big deal. I get it. Not eating, but I, I don't get why everything has just fallen apart so fast. You can't eat us. You can't yell at us, but we, st- we still need you. You have learned other things than eating and yelling, and I don't want to have to learn everything for myself all over again. Dad, he said, his voice breaking. When I, when I twisted my ankle, running after that rabbit, we were like halfway to the horizon, and you just tied it up and told me to walk. It was a long way. I, I, think, I think I remember just about every step. You told me to be tough. You, you gave me a stick to bite on. I was like six or something. And you're getting close to 50, I think. And I know you can deal with just about any kind of pain because you taught me to. So I, I, I don't understand why you can't just put one foot in front of the other and make your way home. Ah, Jesse, Ain pointed at the dark-haired man, every day you attack the angels, more than once sometimes, and you just lose all the time. And we're all terrified that you're going to get some permanent damage, like you're going to glow at night and your bones are going to snap when you take a step. What are you doing? You were always telling me that if something doesn't work, like being upwind when you're hunting, then you just stop doing it. 
You had these rules. Like my dad has these rules. Like you all have these rules. And you're just not applying them now. And it's driving me crazy. Why are these floating babies undoing everything about us? Why can't we hold anything together? His voice rose. We're going to die. Die off if we don't change, learn something. Whatever it is that we have to learn. We can't get enough food and water for all the kids and, and you without your help. You're all turning into these useless eaters. But you're not going off into the wild like Grandpa did. You're just consuming everything, giving nothing. Ain was struck by a sudden thought. Do you want forgiveness? I don't think it, it's guilt. I don't think that, but something. Dad. Roman raised his dead eyes to his son. He slowly shook his head. Ain gestured helplessly. Are we supposed to just wander off and leave you here to, to survive on your own if you want? Is everything being run by ghosts? You're still my dad, even if you don't hit me. Maybe more. Roman felt a deep vibration in his soul, like a rolling church bell. A choice arose in his heart that he did not expect. He had demanded apologies almost every day from those around him, from his children, but he could not remember offering a single one as an adult. Don't do it! To hell with inner voices! I will act! Roman wrestled himself to his feet as if he were underwater, weighed down. He walked to his son on numb feet, on a new path, in a new world. He opened his arms. The circling angels smiled and put away their weapons. Chapter 32 As the leader of the free world, I am not unused to getting my way. After my wife removed her face, revealing a swirling galaxy floating in a void, I roared! That has always been my way, the sword of Damocles hanging over the puppet strings of everyone around me. When you're born with a big face and a strong jaw, and you're taller than normal, with a full head of thick hair, rising impatience followed by table-pounding roaring, just scatters everyone into conformity around you. People are like salmon. If you're a strong enough current, everyone gets in line. <laughs> Tentative people drive me insane. Or rather they would if they weren't so damn useful. So many people try to be nice. But nice people never get anything done. At best, they are as valuable as the mortar used to build a cathedral. Without mortar, I guess, there is no cathedral, but no one cares about the mortar or comes to see it. The man who came into my room after my faceless wife floated out was impossible for me to read. 
let's be honest. When two people, two men, come together, it's like two airplanes flying towards each other. One goes up, one goes under, or everyone dies. Life is nothing but status. We are haggling apes in suits. Nothing more, nothing less. I can always sniff deference in the air and create it if necessary. Escalation is the key. You just have to clench your jaw, stare without blinking, and raise your voice to the point where people fully, truly, and deeply understand that they will have to kill you to get their way. Iron will is the inevitable physics of our universe. People have no more choice to obey the resolute than water has to obey the tide. (laughs) Occasionally, I come across another alpha, and we try our usual tricks on each other, (laughs) and then both end up laughing, shaking hands, and going our different ways. It's kind of like two lions, each thinking they're hunting a gazelle, coming across each other in a bear claw flurry of comical surprise. No one expects them to eat each other. They part as friends, knowing there is more than enough meat for every predator. (laughs) I was so glad not to live in a time of duels and honor and pistols at dawn. I could lie and spread rumors and undermine reputations without a thought. No one was going to slap my face with a glove and shoot my kidney out in the morning mist. Consequences are an insult to the kind of ambition I was raised with. The only cure for addiction is a hangover. And I never had any of the hangovers of guilt or shame or regret. I don't think in my life I ever really felt fear. Caution, for sure, when I was in the presence of a dangerous enemy, but not outright fear. I was originally kind of worried about all of the supposedly good people in the world, but I remained strangely invisible to them. I am the natural prey of abstract virtue, but I was like a zebra wandering through a pride of lions, watching them scrabble for ants in the dust, invulnerable in my obviousness. At Jane's funeral showed me who really ran the world. You run it, or you get run over. The first few tendrils of power are tough. Once you snag those... They turn into a kind of wobbly lasso you can use to capture more. The moment you have any shred of political power, you can punish your enemies and reward your friends. So your enemies fear you and your friends love you. (laughs) In every successful politician, it's the basic thought, how can I possibly get away with this? I promise not to raise taxes. Then I raised taxes. I promised to reduce immigration. Then I increased immigration. I promised transparency. Then slow-walked document requests for years. I praised free speech. Then imposed censorship. 
I promised more press conferences, then rambled my way through remote teleconferences. It all reminded me of pulling out a stubborn tooth when I was a kid. You're frightened of the tug, then it turns out to be nothing, just the snapping of a thin thread, a mouthful of temporary blood. The press was my friend. Reporters attacked all my enemies, making up lies and sending the innocent tumbling into the humiliating canyons of self-justification. Academia praised me in obtuse syllables. Movies portrayed my kind as noble and heroic. (laughs) Economists told everyone I was in total control when things went well, but a victim of blind market forces when my (laughs) economy went into the crapper. I was hated, sure, but you can't be any kind of leader if you fear disapproval. Leadership is all about forcing people to do what they damn well don't want to do, like being a general in a war. And forcing people makes them upset, sure. But it was pretty easy to deal with. (laughs) I had the magic spell of the common good, which I could use to curse anyone who didn't do what I wanted, what I told them to. I represented this common good. I was its bland and enslaved acolyte. So it wasn't me that people had to obey. It was the good of everyone, themselves included, even if they didn't see it at the time. Smiley face. Ah, People shuffled into my life on a continual basis. (laughs) It was a total conveyor belt of hypocritical need. We all played the game and danced the dance. They talked about the common good, and I talked about the general good. Reporters wrote about democracy, and everyone got free stuff, and I got more power. And the common good lay twitching and hyperventilating on the carpet like a frat boy after his first prison shower. Damn, those were great days. You rise as smooth as sunshine. And people feed you and lay out your clothes. It seems vaguely offensive to have to shave yourself. And you take your meetings with excellent coffee. And sunlight pours in through the windows on deep, rich mahogany tables. And the paper is always crisp. And aids lean into your ears and whisper sexy secrets into your brain. And everyone dances a disco dance of verbal avoidance of naked self-interest. And the machineries of pen and paper create legal mazes that mice have to forever sprint through to get a scrap of cheese. And your heart swells with the joy of control. And you know that no one, not one single soul, will ever speak the words that will undo everything. We know that it is all a theater of blood, that the state escalates until citizens comply or die, that all the creamy white walls and pillars are the blended bones of freedom. And if people would only tell the truth, it would all go away. But they are addicted to the lies. And... (laughs) And here was the most perfect thing. 
I understood incredibly quickly that anyone who talked about freedom from me, freedom from us, freedom from lies, was roundly attacked by everyone else. I didn't really need to lift a finger to control speech, thought even, because anyone who talked about property rights and taxation as theft was destroyed by their fellow citizens. I found this hilarious. <laughs> it was like thinking that you needed bars to keep the monkeys in your zoo when any monkey that even thought about escaping would be beaten within an inch of its life by every other monkey around. <laughs> Saves a lot of money on security. <laughs> I found it so amusing <laughs> watching the libertarians and Austrian economists wail and bleat about central banking and the counterfeit nature of government money. <laughs> they genuinely seem to think that their words would undo our electric power to type whatever we wanted into our own bank accounts. I imagined them walking on a hot beach and shielding themselves from burns by endlessly muttering the word sunscreen. It took me a while to learn that you cannot have power without spreading it around. Otherwise, you create implacable enemies who will offer more to the court toadies dependent on the steady drip of government cheese. Sure, we created whatever money we wanted, but we spread it around. We gave it to the bankers. We gave it to those tight to the center of power. And we gave watered-down remnants to the poor, the single mothers. Those dependent, (laughs) so they thought, on us, our generosity. (sighs) They all stood and placed their hands on their hearts when the flags flapped and the anthems played because they were worshipping the gang that gave them cash. And it was a cosmic comedy. (laughs) How everyone self-righteously lied and paraded and pretended. (laughs) It was the new religion. Ah, except we could offer them something more visceral than heaven itself. The money they needed to escape their terrible decisions. (laughs) Single mothers always voted for us. They couldn't choose a good father for their kids, but they sure knew how to choose a political leader for the entire country. (laughs) Oh, it's hard to give those solemn speeches about their noble, stunning, and brave sacrifices without bursting into laughter. Once the government can spread trillions of dollars around the economy, it becomes deeply hilarious to watch everyone talk about the noble and abstract responsibility of voting, a solemn civic duty. At the end of any election cycle, my cheeks were raw from biting. To be fair, there were a lot of true believers in my inner circle. They genuinely thought that we were there to help the poor, to to protect the nation, to, to keep people healthy and happy. They hurried to endless meetings with badly wound neckties, growing flop sweat and a panting, almost hysterical earnestness. 
and they genuinely believed that as long as anyone suffered in the land, they just weren't doing their job properly. They had this aching hypersensitivity to unhappiness anywhere in the world, literally anywhere in the world. It was incredible. And their entire identities were based on alleviating suffering, which meant that any idiot who pretended to suffer controlled their entire existence. But they were incredibly useful as human shields to any philosophical skepticism about the virtue of what we were doing. You could prop them up totally drunk on a lie detector, and they would absolutely pass it if they were asked, are you here to do good? I found their earnestness deeply creepy. Their essential monkey brains had been gouged out and replaced by (laughs) unearthly girly angels. They were the opposite of me, but we complemented each other perfectly. I did the messy dealings with the machinery of power, where fingers and souls get lost on a regular basis, while they covered the unholy mess with a sheen of self-righteous stained glass. I did the screaming wet work of carving bloody laws from squealing self-interest. They covered up the inevitable abattoir with apple-cheeked earnest choirs. Oh, God, who else? Oh, yeah. There was the gang called the Dreadnoughts. They didn't have my sunny and joyful passion for the exercise of mere power. Oh, no. They had some mysterious, darker purpose to their daily grind. They hated something or or, or wanted something No one ever tried to plumb their black depths because they were such useful weapons to point at intransigent enemies. The dreadnoughts would comb over a person's entire history, finding something, or inventing something, to kill off their public lives. Nuance was their enemy, out of context to their ranged weapon. There were also the enforcers for anyone we couldn't snag legally. They attacked anyone who supported or went to the speeches of these paladins. They called in the bomb threats and death threats. They were mostly single sons of single mothers, sent out by the unconscious, terrified greed of the matriarchs. (laughs) We secretly called them the statriarchs, to wreck and destroy anyone who might interfere with the free flow of tax revenues to their... Ample polyester laps. It wasn't a simple thing to be a politician. You had to have an instinctive feel for all these colliding alliances. You had to manage the idealism of the choir boys and use it as a cover for the dreadnoughts and make sure the enforcers didn't go too feral. You had to... I'm not sure exactly how to put it. It wasn't exactly overlook, but bypass everything that was going on. You couldn't look at anything directly. We all knew that, but you had to work with it, examine it. It sometimes felt like fixing a complicated watch in pitch darkness. Your sense of 
touch goes astronomical, but you can't see a damn thing. It was all collusion and back-scratching. <laughs> I remember as a rookie going on talk shows and being interviewed by reporters. And I was young and naive enough to cautiously imagine that reporters were tough as nails confronters of the powers that be. I guess I had imbibed too much of the Kool-Aid as a teenager. But they were all mild sycophants, only dangerous to anyone who challenged their vanity, which I certainly wasn't about to do. They would ask tough questions, and I would dance a two-step of staccato avoidance, and then they would just move on. They wouldn't try to pin me down. They wouldn't ask for clarification or, God help us, definitions. They would ask. I would avoid. And they would pat themselves on the back for the professionalism and toughness of their interrogation. Ah, I remember being on a city council as early on, and some half-bald doofus was making a documentary and marched up and challenged all of us to explain how we were going to pay for everything we promised. <laughs> oh, we all gave each other a smirking side-eye and had him hauled out by security. It was just a silly yet dangerous question. It wasn't like we were providing any real value. That's not the point of government. The point of government is power. And you get power by giving things away. But it's not actual power if you have to give your own stuff away. That wouldn't make any sense at all. The whole point of having power is to remove yourself from the mere mortality of mathematics. <laughs> I remember my father explaining this to me when I was very little, after we watched some stupid superhero movie, what my dad used to call kickbangs. <laughs> Son, these superheroes... They can do the impossible. Defy the laws of physics, fly, shoot fire from their hands and lasers from their eyes. They are wrapped in magic. That's what superpower means. He took an amber sip from a crystal whiskey glass that never seemed to empty. And that's my job. And one day, it will be your job as well. To defy reality. To break math to plant impossibility and harvest power. We are the farmers of what should never be, but always is. And everyone worships the impossible. That is the root of patriotism. Did you see the happy faces of the people in the crowd when the superhero flew by? They love him because he makes heroism impossible for them because they can't fly. They love him because he fights evil, but he is impossible, which means it is impossible for them to fight evil. It eases their conscience for doing nothing about... <laughs> In the past, with Jesus, yet to try and do what he did, although he was a superhero in his way, you could be like him. Now they want billionaires with impossible gadgets to fight evil because they can never approach him, be like him. Jesus left us with the commandment that everyone had to fight evil 
and that everyone could be like him. These new gods, the superheroes, you can't be like them. That's the point. They're everyone's excuse for doing nothing, which is why everyone gets addicted to them and excited by them and will pay to relieve their own conscience. In the past, you had to go to a priest and confess your sins and make amends and do better. Now, idiots slap down 20 bucks, cheer the impossible, and walk out absolved. Some words sit in your life for years before they are properly understood. Fighting evil is a dangerous business. Gets a lot of people killed and destroyed. But no one wants to be ashamed of their own inaction. So we exist as a kind of pretend virtue. So people can pretend to do good without actually angering evil. Everyone wants the slender waist. Nobody wants the diet. Everyone wants to feel heroic. No one wants to put themselves in danger. So they come to us and demand that we do good. And every couple of years, they scribble an X on a ballot and consider themselves the ultimate saints of human history. (laughs) Well, the same thing was true for video games. But I never really understood how anyone could take pride in pushing pixels around a dead screen, so I didn't bother to analyze it too much. I do remember (laughs) laughing once about a professional paper on virtual currency in some gaming environment. The Economist seem to have absolutely no idea about the true nature of fiat currency. I shake my head as the sandy-haired man walks into my room. God, I have to stop ruminating about the past. I know that it's all I have in, in whatever world I have woken into, but I absolutely must find a way to excavate my prior skills into the here and now. I'll be damned if I will rely on my historical reputation being the Napoleon of my day, to gain authority and power in the present. I loved the exercise of power. It was my very reason for being. And if I can't make it happen here, well, I'll just tell them to put me back to sleep and damn well wake me up when I can. The man pulls a chair to the foot of my bed, sits down and regards me with... What the hell is that expression? Neutral curiosity? Condescending wonder? It's so weird, feeling my brain misfire in this way. I can read any expression from anyone, down to the last atom, but I have no idea what is going on in this man's head. I don't care how long it's been. People are still people. I suddenly realize I would much rather be paralyzed than lose my ability to read people. That is a handicap I cannot stand. I will my brain to process the face beyond my covered feet. The hair is light, mildly sideswept. The forehead is wide and strong. The eyes light. I can't quite tell the color in the dark. The face is angular, as if composed of geometrical blocks tightly packed. The mouth is not sensual, but not stern either. He does not look at me with respect or fear, or much curiosity for that matter, or wonder. He looks at me like, like, I want to make a fist and wrap my knuckles against my forehead, but I know that would be an unpardonable show of weakness. 
It is incredibly frustrating to be unable to read this man, to figure out his weaknesses, his desires, his fears. I am as terrified as if I have woken up in the pilot's seat of a plunging airplane and none of the controls move at all. I am terrified. The import of the thought strikes me like a spinal fist. This is fear. The man leans forward. My name is David. Welcome back to life. You have no power here. <laughs>